In today's episode, the challenges we face in expressing our true selves. We've been conditioned in a certain system and we do things every day, all day long, that are not congruent with our values. And the power that comes from finding your own full personal truth. The essence of what I see and who I am in the world is from a place of where I have a different viewpoint from a slightly less conditioned place. I had to invent myself to find my place in the world. With our guest, B. A Link. B also shares the inspiration behind her mobility innovation, the Alinker bike. The Alinker is just a vehicle for social change. How do we create a world where people can live into their potential? Plus, B shares the personal impact of the organization SheEO on business and life. It is incredibly powerful and you have no idea just by words hearing about it what it is until you're in it. Because that is where you can be your own self and what resonates deeply inside of you, the values that we already know. Welcome to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Leaders who are innovating, building, and guiding organizations with a higher vision. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldie and Mark Stenson. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back. You know, Kirsten and I have a chance to talk to so many great people, and we've got a great guest for you today where we're going to talk about living your full potential, both in life and in business. I'm Mark Stenson. I'm president of Bioscience Bridge. We're a heart-based branding consultancy. And Kirsten, good to see you again today. Yeah, I'm so excited that we're doing this again today. Mark and I were just talking about how much, how good it's back to be in the studio recording together, albeit from different spaces and places. I'm Kirsten Gouldy, and I'm the CEO of Pure Intelligent. I'm also an intuitive advisor and work with many clients on reaching their potential and experiencing their own best life. So we're really excited because we have a great guest. I know, Mark, you and I are both very excited. Well, so and we, it, you know, going back to the idea that we want to bring these guests on that don't just talk about beliefs and philosophies. Yeah. It's like, you know, how do we live this stuff? How do we practice it? Well, B, uh, welcome aboard to the podcast. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Yeah. So B, a link is described as a paradigm shifter and a reverse designer and a real impact player. Uh, Kirsten, tell us more about B and uh, let's get into it. Yeah, she is an impact player in the world and she has many disciplines and we'll let B speak to it, you know, deeper and wider. But, you know, as you'll see in her bio, she has an international footprint. So she's not just a nationally based visionary. She has a global visionary capacity. She has seen things around the world that she does attribute to where she is today. So B, I'm looking forward to diving deeper into understanding that. She considers herself, and I'm sure others do as well, a paradigm shifter, an edge walker, and also has a family farm that is committed to ensuring healthy, sustainable food for families and for people. So we'll let her speak to that more about that. And she also has her, um, she's the inventor of the A-Linker, the vehicle for social change. So B, welcome. We're excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. And there's a lot that you just mentioned. I don't know how we're all going to fit that in half an hour. <laughs> I, it's almost impossible. So we, this may be a whole series. <laughs> but, oh my but, God. but B, why don't we start with that A-Linker design and the bike and the mobility. Tell us a little bit about that venture. Well, the A-Linker itself is kind of the end result, the first physical visible result of my um, reverse design practices, which I never really had so much language for. And it only grew in the Alinker as I started realizing what I was actually doing and why it was so different. So we are completely conditioned to always focus on problems that we're fixing. Every entrepreneur that is writing a business plan, what is the problem that you're fixing? And I actually don't believe in problems. When you look at medical devices, they are designed as a technical solution for a body with a problem. But there's something wrong with that whole constellation because we're not a body with a problem. If we have a disability, we are whole human beings that want to live a full and engaged life. So by seeing us as a body with a problem, the solution is flawed because they're not solutions. When, I, when my mother 
um, said one day when we passed by some um, uh, some people with scooters and rollators in the Netherlands that was on a, on a market plane. And, um, and she, out of the blue, she said, over my dead body, will I ever use one of those things? You know, you don't think about something until somebody puts that in your viewfinder. Exactly. And that comment of my mom launched it into my viewfinder. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Why would you give people with disabilities stuff that amplifies the disability and creates a social divide? And that instantly started propelling this whole question. It's like, who's benefiting from this? And maybe the system benefits from amplifying the disability, isolating people in, into a corner, driving them into poverty, because that way they won't be annoying to us anymore. Mm-hmm. It's also confronting because we think we're invincible. Nothing will ever happen to us. So how dare you have a, a disability and make me uncomfortable? Yes. Right. Yes. Because we have built in our white supremacist um, capitalistic system, we have learned that we have a right to comfort. Well, well so, and, this, and well, this idea of separation, you you have also talked about just being at eye level. You know, and if somebody is looking down upon somebody in a wheelchair or looking down at somebody who has, is holding onto a walker, you know, you're already creating a distance and a separation because of that quote-unquote disability when it's really not uh, disabled at all. And so the linker is designed for how we want to live regardless of the mobility challenges that we might have. We all have somewhere in life until you drop, unless you drop that immediately, we will all have disabilities. So we better just come to terms with that and make it a little bit safer to have disabilities because we'll all face that. Why just isolate it and put it away? And that makes it really scary. And then because we're scared, we isolate people with disabilities. And I've learned, if anything, I've learned with the Alinker as the most important thing is that isolation is a way bigger problem than the physical um, symptoms that people might live with, with diseases or after an accident or after a stroke. So we are human beings who like to be engaged and active. And on the Alinker, the, the premise of designing it was, I want to make something so cool that people first love to use it and not say like, oh, my dead body, love to use it. And that it's so cool that people are seen as the person with the cool bike. That's right. So now I've got people with building the whole Alinker family. I, I recently had somebody who called me and she said, I have to apologize. I don't have a disability, but how can I can I still be part of your Alinka family? <laughs> Is it That's, still okay if I have the cool bike? Yeah. Exactly. Can I can I be part of your family? Because this is a place where I want to belong. So it's not about us being a body with a problem. It's acknowledging people in who we are in essence. Uh, that's so and people, And generally, people who have gone through um, some stuff in life that have been confronted with life actually know a little bit more about life. So if you connect with people with disabilities, you find the most amazing people. And it's really a tribe that is so attractive because they know a little bit more about life. So they are measuring in different values. And that's a group of, we call that the rise of the weirdos within the Alinker family. Bring it. We're all weirdos and let's celebrate it. And like, let's come together on who we are, not what we have and then something really magical happens. Uh, that's fantastic. And, you know, we were introduced to you, to you and your company through this organization, SheEO. Tell us about how that you know, backed your venture and how that gave you some renewed energy uh, behind mm-hmm. what you were doing. Oh, my God, where to start? Where to start? Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a little um, view into history of where I was. So my mom made this comment. I was like, oh, I have to... I, I can do something better for my mom. That was the initial thought. I just wanted to do something that my mom would like to use. That grew into something completely different. That's why I'm always hesitant to say that my aging mother made that comment because then people instantly think like, oh, it's for elderly people. It's not. Less than 15% of our customers is 50, 65, 65 plus. So my mom was very young when she said that. <laughs> and it's not the elderly people. I started making prototypes. Like, like I'm, I'm an architect by training, a woodworker and and restoration architect from long ago. And so I made first prototypes as in just figuring out like, what is that? What does it want to be? And I made them in wood. So after a while I had something, I was like, I think this is actually something. And let's, um, let's find somebody who can weld stuff together and make a functional prototype that we might go and test, see how it works. I had a full-time job. It was in Vancouver at that time. 
I had a full-time job and I started making prototypes. And as I, like luckily I was in a company that I did a big project in Doha, all the glass for the new airport in Doha, $17 million of glass. And Doha is in a different timeline. So I could go to the office at four o'clock in the morning and leave at 12 or one o'clock or something. And I still had a whole day left to go to the guy that could weld. Well, there I was with my wooden prototypes. And he was like, what the, mm-hmm-hmm. <laughs> you think I can translate this in aluminum? Here you go. And aluminum, sorry. That's my Dutch <laughs> background there. And so we had the very traditional fights between what a woman thinks and what a guy thinks. Just make it straight. It's easier. It's faster. It's like, I don't want it straight because it doesn't look cool. Who cares how it looks? And anyway, the, the, the traditional, the, the very typical conversation between um, engineers and architects. Kind I was going to say, design and production. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I'm an engineer as well. I'm an engineer and architect and I'm a woodworker. So we sort of hit it off and started doing crazy stuff. And then with the first prototype, I went to the Netherlands and my mom was like, wow. And then a friend of hers, 84 years at the time, got on it, flipped his cap around and he started running. Oh, and wow. he was like, I haven't run in eighty in, in 20 years. And I was like, oh, wow. If this dude of 84 can run again, then this is a little bit more than is a little bit different thing than just a better thing for my mom. So then I, I became aware of that this might actually be something. So then over time, I quit my job and I lived off my little reserves and I needed more and more money. So I needed to get to investors. Now, I met a few really nice people that initially gave me some money. And then when you, you know, you grow faster and you need more money and you have less time. (laughs) So in that process, I started pitching to investors and they say like, what's the problem that you're solving? "Um, I don't have a problem. And then they were like, huh? So you need to explain what you're doing. That already becomes uncomfortable. You got 90 seconds of elevator pitch. And I'm like, how can you explain what we're doing in 90 seconds? That's just investors that typically to me, we want you to suffer a little bit harder because you're too much risk for us. You've got a physical product that's not proven yet. It's completely new. Investors don't want to go there. And that drove me into compared with, uh, combined with a menopause, I have to say, I think I had something to do with it. I was in a dark little space. Um, I was every night when I cried myself to sleep, I did not want to wake up anymore. And I wasn't antidepressants. I drank was not a good scene. I was not in a good space at all because I couldn't find anybody who believed with me in what was possible. And so then I had met Vicky the year, the very first year of CEO and I, um, and she at an event and she said, just go on stage and just put an ask there. And I was like, an ask what stage? What do you mean? And so I went 30 seconds on stage. I have no idea what I babbled about, but something happened. And then Vicky said, like, just apply for um for ceo and i was like apply for ceo like what so i applied and i i was selected in the top 25 wow. not made it to be a venture but i started feeling something and i was like wow this is different and i didn't quite know what it was and vicky has grown a lot over time so ceo has changed their language and went through their own growth process uh, of developing like who are we what is this like all rooted into radical generosity which in effect I think is the essence of who we are as human beings, radically generous people. So she had something and I was attracted and I didn't know quite what. So the year after I became an activator and I was selected into the top five. And I remember on the 28th of January, my birthday, that Vicky called me and she said, you've made it into the top five. That literally changed my life. Mm. And I don't think I would have lived, nor would the Alinker ever have made it to the market if it wasn't for CEO because in CEO from guys saying like, Oh, we need you, we need you to suffer a little bit harder because it's too much risk for us to hundreds. Now thousands of women saying like, we've selected you, we believe in you and we want you to succeed. What do you need? That changes everything, everything. Mm -hmm. And not just for the ventures, also for activators in the network. It is, incredibly powerful and you have no idea just by words hearing about it what it is until you're in it Mm -hmm. because that is where you can be your 
own self in what resonates deeply inside of you, the values that we already know. Mm. It changed my life. And then <laughs> years later, Vicky says to me, because I'm living in her basement right now. <laughs> and she, um, uh, last year or something, she had that one sentence that always stuck with me. She said, you kind of literally moved into my life, changed my life, and you never asked. I never asked. I just moved in because that's exactly where I need, where I felt life again. Mm-hmm. And so we've become, you know, this sort of parallel path on what I'm taking with D-Link and what she's doing with CEO. And we're, we're on this journey together. The Alinker is just a vehicle for social change. And for her, CEO is just a vehicle for social change. We talk about exactly the same thing. How do we create a world where people can live into their potential? Mm-hmm. So B, um, first of all, I want to thank you for your authenticity, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, and it's tearing me up because what people mostly don't know is how hard it is to move out of a paradigm that is not for you, right? It's really, and I've grown up on Wall Street, so I know exactly the investors you're speaking to. They don't want you to succeed because they ultimately want to take over your company. And kill you. And kill you. Because they don't know how to do this. They certainly don't want you moving in their basement. Right, right. And I don't want to live in their basement either. Let's make that very clear. But you know, know, I couldn't help, Kirsten. Literally, before we hit the record button, we were talking about these fork of the road moments that we all go through. Mm-hmm. And here B has described, I don't know, there were like 17 fork in the road decisions that she just listed for us. But I mean, you, you had your personal challenge, you had your business challenge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of these things were coming together. And yet, there's this one phone call on the 28th of January one year, that it's like, okay, let's, let's go down this path. Right. And, the, and the door's now open. Right. And what I also heard is all you wanted to do was to impact social change and social justice, right? In your heart, that was the radical component. And yet it took this other woman who had the same vision in a separate industry, but same need and desire to shift a world for something better. Right. Mm-hmm. And your worlds collided. And that's that work. That's my mystical world. Right. Yeah. That's how we when we are in full flow and surrender, then the gates open up so we can begin to find our like people. So that's the story is just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 hard to. Like, I think I'm blessed that I'm a gender weirdo. I'm not a typical boy, I'm not a typical girl. So I actually wasn't as conditioned because it didn't apply to me anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think the essence of what I see and who I am in the world is from a place of where I have a different, slightly different viewpoint from a slightly less conditioned place. I had to invent myself to find my place in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, from... Um, from being a weirdo, a gender weirdo, as I always say, because there's no language for what I feel, no existing language. Um, I think I went into international work because when I was in the Netherlands, I was raised, born and raised in the Netherlands. I was always the weirdo and I didn't understand it. I'm in my own culture. Why am I the weirdo? Why do I not fit? Why don't I understand what's happening around me? And I placed myself as a white person in Kenya to start with. And I was now in charge of being the weirdo. Mm-hmm. I chose to be the white person between the black people in Kenya. It was on so your terms. It was on my terms. And by going into international work that resulted into 10 years, into a little bit more than 10 years international work with a total of three and a half years in Afghanistan, ultimately where my soul came home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a whole story in itself. Yeah, I was going to ask, we've touched that a little bit because that's a big word. In IntelliKey, it requires the component of the essence of the soul, right? Yes. Pure yeah. alignment of who we really are. Can Absolutely. you touch that a little bit? Um, yes. 
So Afghanistan, whew, I have no idea what happened there. I still, and I don't try to understand it. I know what happened there. Um, I flew into Peshawar. I had a job um, with German AgroAction, some um, uh, uh, NGO in Afghanistan. I always knew about Afghanistan. When the Russians invaded Afghanistan, um, I remember when that happened. Like people remember when Kennedy died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as a kid, I learned that there was a direct border between Afghanistan and China. And I was like, how is that possible? China is on that side of the earth and Afghanistan is on this side of the earth. How can they be connected? And I was fascinated. As a kid, I was fascinated by Afghanistan, never knew why. So I landed in Peshawar and then was driven through the Khyber Pass in June or something. It was 55 degrees. I thought I'd die because I'd never prepare when I go anywhere. And the moment I crossed the border at Torham, I cried, I wept, and I did not know what was happening. And as I lived in Afghanistan and ultimately three and a half years there, I was home. My soul was home with the people too. The people do not judge. We judge, we have learned to segment people on how they look and how they dress and all that stuff. And it sounds very weird because we're so brainwashed to think about Afghanistan, what we think here in the Western news. But in Afghanistan, people don't judge. They took me as I am, and they dressed me half boy, half girl. And they were like, you can't wear a shovel kameez with pockets because that's too too much a guy. You can't wear a dress that's like not you. And they made something, a guy, a tailor who had never left Jalalabad, right after the Taliban, I entered there. And he made something completely androgynous to me because that's how he felt I was. And I've been completely... I had full access to the women communities there. I had full access to the men's community there. I've been in places where no woman has ever gone. I've been in meetings where no woman have ever gone. I've had women offer to me to marry me, knowing full well that I was a woman, but that's not how I was felt. And it's not because I'm a white woman. That happens, and I learned that in Afghanistan. There is a... There's not just two genders. Let's make that clear. That's only the Western people that figure that out. And that's a system, a binary system. And I learned in Afghanistan and in other cultures too, like there's something happening here between, it's not typical boys, typical girls. There's something happening. And as I was in those countries, I learned that only the white Western society has a few, has a, 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 a single binary system. So there's cultures with 17 genders. Here in Canada, indigenous people recognize five official genders. And as I learned about them, there's male, female, something in between, and there's a two-spirited person. I was like, that's, if anything, that is who I am in essence. And in Afghanistan, I could be that. I could be my soul. I could live my soul. And there was no judgment. Sorry? I said you were fully seen. I was fully seen. And I've personally, I have never been anywhere safer in my life than in Afghanistan. Fully being myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't anything else than myself. It's so, just so interesting that, I mean, we, we talk all the time about different cultures and we, we know intellectually that we're probably brainwashed by the news and we have these preconceived notions of different countries and different cultures. But you, you, not just traveling, but like you said, living there. Um, you know, and I, I just, it reinforces it ought to be a mandatory, you know, everyone gets a passport and has to travel and live somewhere else for a year. Uh, just, you've got to see the rest of the world, don't you? Yeah. And I think there is something about personal awareness that people need to go through because I've seen so many foreigners travel to countries and abuse people there because they're so brainwashed that they're better than the rest. You don't want to do that to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so unless there is awareness about who I am in the world and I'm no more or no less than anybody else and I'm here to share and you can laugh about what we have is our cultures. It's not what we are. Like I have rolled over the ground laughing with Afghans, Afghan men, 
about how ridiculous the things are that they bought their wives or that I did this in the Netherlands. Like how we treat elderly people, put them in homes. They rolled over the ground laughing. How ridiculous it is how we treat elderly Why people. Why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you do that? You don't respect wisdom that comes through generations? Who the hell are you, you people? That's just, And so that is things that we have. It's not who we are. Who we are is radically generous people that want to give and receive and live in community and want to be seen and acknowledged. So if you connect on who we are, everything is possible and there's no cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And there's things feel to like share this, and to enjoy well, or to laugh about. No know? question. And do you find that this, this enlightenment that you found, does that fuel then in, in, in the further desire for social change? I mean, does that drive you even more? And, and I want to be sure that we focus on one of the other areas you're working on and that's food. But, uh, you know, in the area of mobility and the over social change and all the things that you're working on, does this international peripheral vision, you know, you've, you've seen more than what's in front of you. Does that drive that for you? I don't believe in change. Mm. I don't believe in systems change. I don't believe in, in changing the world. I don't believe in social change. I believe in changing our perspective. Because we've been conditioned in a certain system and we do things every day, all day long, that are not congruent with our values. And we actually constantly traumatize ourselves. Right? Thank you. I, yeah, thank I, had a, I think that's essential to feel that. There's yeah. no outside systems that we need to change. We are the system. Mm-hmm. Right. We are conditioned to support the system that is not benefiting us it's never designed for our well-being and we support it with everything that we do right and so if we want to have systems change we need to acknowledge that we are the system and we are conditioned to support things that are actually not for our well-being why would we support that that's insane right that's completely insane so and that takes a lot of practice and awareness to see it that way because we're so conditioned like what's the problem that you're solving i don't have a problem huh the world is full of problems. Like, no, racism is not a problem. It is there by design to divide us so that white people don't understand or don't know mass incarceration that makes money to a few companies that now have free labor. It is designed that I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Racism is by design. It's not a problem. It's a symptom of white supremacy system that benefits from racism. <laughs> That we are all conditioned to not watch. Exactly. And you said something, I want to go back to it because you said something that was so important. And I had this discussion about my family a few weeks ago, which was you got to choose the conditions by which you are going to live. It was your choice. You are now choosing to be, as to use your words, the weirdo. Right. And it was now at your and So I come from an interracial family and I have two black brothers. Right. And even I'm blown away by the level of what I don't know. Right. I'm still dealing with my own white elitism on this, especially in today's world in America. And my brother, who is black and six foot four is leading the protests in Hollywood in Los Angeles. And we received a picture from him in front of the police with all of the masks, the guns. And, you know, of course, our first reaction is terrified. But then my second reaction was, but now he gets to choose his beating on his own terms. It's now his terms, not the police's terms, because he has experienced this stuff, right? So Mm -hmm. when you say that, that level of consciousness elevates. Once you know you're choosing for your cause, that does, you know, what I heard you say, and tell me if I'm correct, is your soul could finally breathe. It could finally become not who you're meant to be, but who you are who you are and we've just been buried with conditions that don't allow us to reveal the essence of who we are right so you've just pulled off all the stuff that was mired onto you at birth 
Mm-hmm. Now, I'm and the more ask- you are a part of a segment or yeah. a minority or a marginalized group, I don't believe in all those terms, by the way, also not. That's, that's designed to be in segments and to be dividing us. I don't believe in any of those terms. That's why I live without language. In my gender weirdoness, I don't have language and people don't understand me because, so how do you identify? It's like, what do you need? Because I don't need to identify as anything. I'm just B. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the more you're part of any of those segments and have been confronted with life, back to what we earlier said, the more we are forced to choose who we are. And that's, I think, where white people, white heteronormative people that always have sort of walked the lines of privilege, uh, privilege are lost at the moment because they don't know who they are. Very well. And they get and they get really scared and sad and angry because they actually don't, they've never really been confronted mm-hmm. with life. Because life makes you grow. Life makes you uncomfortable, gives you pain as you grow, as you work through discomfort. Any other culture learns to move through discomfort. Only white supremacist capitalistic system has taught us that we have a right to comfort. We have a right to be dead, right? Mm. And, and it's so sophisticated because when we learn something as humans, it takes effort and it, you know, growing pains and learning and so on. Oh, it's uncomfortable to learn things because I don't know it yet, yet, you know? So we learn something and then we put it in a pattern because I've learned it, now it's in a pattern. So the comfort of the pattern, whatever we've learned, if we've learned abuse, If we have learned that I am better than somebody else, I've learned that now. Now it's in a comfort pattern, in a a pattern that's comfortable. And now the system tells me I have the right to that comfort. So I have the right to the privileges that go over the back of other people. Mm -hmm. It's a very sophisticated system, very sophisticated. And so people that have never been confronted with the question like, who am I? And who do I want to be in this world? are completely lost at this time, and they get angry. Uh-huh. They get mm-hmm. really, really angry. It's so interesting you talk about the uh, the system that we build around ourselves, you know, and get comfortable with. You know, I, I, I speak for myself, let alone maybe some listeners who came to hear about a business at a, you know, uh, a linker bike, and we've gone into some new areas that are they provocative are they uncomfortable do they break some old thinking absolutely and to allow a little bit of discomfort so if our listeners uh if you're a little bit sweaty right now because you're hearing some new ideas i think we're in the right place that's what i would say we're in the right place and i refer to myself as an edge walker because on the edges you're constantly forced to be aware and if we're Awareness is a practice, is an activity, and it's a choice every time again. I need to be aware, I need to be aware, and it's, an acti- it's, it's a very intense activity. So if I'm an edge walker and I'm constantly on Seamus permaculture, on the edges where one area meets another area, um, that's where life happens. So on the edge is where I'm constantly in awareness, where I can constantly feel like, who do I want to be? Do I want to go? Where do I want to go? What, what, what is the essence of what's happening now? And so I love that space where you're constantly in awareness because in awareness, I can be congruent with myself. And congruency is the essential word for me. Um, A while ago, a friend of mine, my partner actually, she asked me, um, tell me about a very powerful embodied experience around food that you have somewhere in your life that has influenced your life. And I instantly knew I was I was right there because it's an embodied experience. It already lives in you. So I told her about how I was squatting with my grandma on a pea patch behind the, the, the house of my, ma, my grandma. She was a very poor woman, had a little pea patch where she grew her own vegetables. And she was picking off them the, um, the beans from the bee stock. And as she was picking the beans from the bee stock, I was four or five years maybe or something, she was telling me that if I ever would see a problem, I had to turn around, go around it, and look at it from the other side. 
because then maybe I might find out that there is no problem or that the solution at least would be different. In fact, what she taught me was empathy. But the thing is why it stuck with me and why she was able to, um, to, to pass on that wisdom to me and she might have not thought too much about it anyway. She was a very poor woman, completely uneducated, could barely write her own name. But she had wisdom that she passed on to me in that pea patch. Because in the pea patch, there's pace, there's intergenerationally, inter- intergenerational contact, there's the contact with the earth, there is growing your own food and being in connection with the food that you're eating that evening. There's all those values wrapped up in that little experience that I instantly thought about. Those values live inside of me. Mm. And if I, if these are, I mean, you can go into deeper, deeper levels and more details and get a lot more values out of that. Those values live inside of me. So I just need to remember, re-member, I need to remember with myself about who I want to be that lives in congruency with myself. So if those are the values that I have around food and I go to the grocery shop, this is the world around me, I go to the grocery shop, I buy shit probably in plastic or whatever processed stuff. I buy it, I bring it home, I put it in a pot, I prepare it, I eat it, and then all the packaging I throw in a plastic bag and put in in the waste. All those actions every day, every action that I have in relation to food is probably traumatizing me because it's not congruent with my inner values around food. And so who do I want to be in this world? I want to live in congruency with myself because otherwise I get traumatized all the time and I get really mad and I get really sad and I need to, you know, drink alcohol to get away from the fact that I'm not congruent with myself because that creates stress. If I'm not congruent with myself, it creates stress beyond anything that we can recognize. That's what we'll look around us. That's exactly where we are. Mm-hmm. Nobody lives in congruency with their inner values. No. You know, it's fascinating. I, I'd love to share something about what you just said, right? Because I just left Boise. I, I'm somewhat of a nomadic being. I, now that my children are grown, I'm able to go wherever I want to. So, you know, I had my house in Boise and I'd been holding on to stuff since I was 19 years old, but I had redesigned my, I just had an apartment, but um, I had furniture and whatnot. And I decided to sell everything or, or should I say my younger children who are my best boys urged me to let go of everything. And I listened to, they, they have wisdom beyond my age group. So I do value what they share with me or suggestions they give me. However, that being said, I love my book collections. I love my, and we all have Kindles now, right? And as I was in this donation and Mark and Jenny know very well what I'm talking about because they were kind enough to take off my stuff to donation. (laughs) They were the ones who were helping me. But when I had these books and I shared about, I do an earth keepers class where we talk about what it actually means to be a steward of the earth, right? Like really Mm -hmm. this time it's, we have to now, but I saw those books and they were my cherished books, but I cried. I cried because they were going probably really never going to find a home. And there were the trees that we cut down And these books would not be repurposed. They would not be regenerated. Even if they go into, you know, we reuse them. They were still trees that were lost for my gluttony, right? Do I really need to have a bookshelf of a thousand books? And when I have a Kindle, right? When I really have a Kindle that doesn't harm anything. So I love what you talk about, right? Like, Everything we do is an unconscious action that has an unsustainable component to it that is incongruent, not only just with who we are, but the natural harmonic component of life itself, right? Because we're all interconnected. Life Mm -hmm. has its all flow. So what you're speaking to is really how we sustain life in totality not just ours but everything within it also absolutely and i think that's your farm right mm -hmm. that's your farm Mm -hmm. well this system has taught us that me as an individual is more important than the well-being of the community right right what 
How is that possible? How is I've that never possible? understood that. <laughs> but it's that true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I have the right to my comfort of what I've learned to wear clothing or to buy stuff and to live a life and to rake all the money in or whatever over the back of others. And I've been taught that I'm the hero now. I'm celebrated as a hero. Like if I'm that person, I'm not. But, you know, um, how is it possible that somebody in a huge Bentley can drive past homeless people and the guy in the Bentley is celebrated for having that made it? The same. How is that possible? And my mind gets blown by that question every day. Exactly. Right. So, it, it goes to Jeff Bezos, right? I forgot what number, how much he makes per second, and yet he does nothing for humanity. He has right. not one charitable organization other yeah. than its tax write-offs. Right. So how do we, and I, 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 that's what I talked about this morning with a group of people that, that we were um, on Zoom with. How do we perpetuate the system is by not being aware of who we are, what we, what our inner values are, mm-hmm. and constantly living in scarcity. I'm not good enough. I'm a woman. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. I don't have time. Um, all those messages on scarcity is how the system controls us. And by not, and I constantly feel powerless because I'm not good enough, and I don't have the power to do this. The whole story before CEO. Mm-hmm. I, I had something inside of me that was like, I don't know what it is, but this is way bigger than me. It, I'm, I need to be the conduit to bring this out because this needs to be there, not because of me, but I, am, I happen to be the conduit. Later, and you will appreciate this being a, a, a psychic, um, I was at a, uh, it was in the fourth year or something when I was really, really struggling. Uh, and it was before CEO. I went to a chiropractor because I had this incredible pain between my shoulder blades. And it was like somebody had put a, a wood clamp, a vice on it and just vice it. And it was so painful. I could not, I wanted to crack it out of my back and it was so painful. So I went to this um, uh, uh, chiropractor who also was an energy worker and he did I don't know what he did, but he did something. And when I go somewhere, I'm completely... You can see her hands, everybody, but she's moving stuff around in the air. (laughs) When I go somebody, I completely surrender myself. Otherwise, why go there? So I was like, whatever. And then he said at a certain time, he said, don't tell me anything while you're here. Don't tell me anything. And then after a while, he did that with his eyes closed and with his fingers. And he said, no wonder you have such a pain in your back. And I was like, excuse me? (laughs) And he said, you have such an incredible weight on your shoulders. And I was like, oh, great. He's going to fix it now. (laughs) And he said, "Um, no. Um, I don't think he responded to that. He said, I see four people. Four people who died far too young that were not done yet. They have still work to do and they come through you. Mm. I'm the conduit and I'm not this individual here. If I close my eyes, if we all three close our eyes, we're in resonance with each other. We're not an individual here, there and there. Mm -hmm. We are all part of a much bigger thing. And when we close our eyes, we get snapped out of the consensus reality that we are made to believe is true. And the only thing that we need to believe and the consensus reality puts us into scarcity all the time and controls us. So screw consensus reality, just close your eyes sometimes (laughs) and feel, feel who you are in connection with other people. Well, and that's one of those things that I want to, I mean, first of all, this has just been a fantastic uh, conversation. I'm mindful of our time, but uh, I I do want to make sure that you've been so free in sharing with your, your story. And one of the takeaways I have is how much individual responsibility now, you know, the changes within us uh, to take a look at some of these things in a new and different light. And you've, you've begun to touch on some of your practices, but I mean, what, what would you suggest to those of us who want to look deeper inside and take a, a new and fresh look? Uh, what are some of the things that, that have been working for you and uh, that we might consider? 
Well, I think the exercise of think of a really powerful embodied experience in relation to food that you might have is a very interesting one because it instantly connects you with what lives inside. And it's interesting. I've asked a lot of people this question and what always comes up, there's some kind of intergenerational uh, uh, connection. There's always something to fresh food or a farm or a pea patch or something. Always. We all live in cities. What? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you yes. know? So it's really interesting how that is like we're we're not living congruent to who we are, what our values are. So just to feel into who you are, what you actually what comes up when you think about a powerful embodied experience in relationship to food that you might have had somewhere in your life and what does it bring up? What kind of values can you um, get from that? And then like, oh, I'm doing something completely different than, wow, yes. that's causing me stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no wonder it's a mismatch. Yeah, mm-hmm. very powerful. And a little bit about the farm because- um, Yes, tell us uh, about that. Yeah, so um, the linker is, I always say, it's just a vehicle for social change. Um, and then people's like, uh, how how come you have a farm? I thought you were selling bikes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, okay, yeah. So um, if we we don't have a healthcare system, we have a sick care system that kicks in once we're sick. So again, the language. If so we good. if we acknowledge that this is a sick care system, we can just turn around and say, like, why would I try and fix that? It makes money over six people, sick people, and yeah. once you're sick, but. Maybe we just need to turn around and create a healthcare system um, that is for and by us for our wellness and actually includes all those social determinants of health. So um, access to community, access to belonging, to acknowledging, access to healthy food, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So one of the um, uh, Linker users is uh, is Brandon. And we got to know each other um, through Selma Blair, who's on Olinker. Um, she's a Hollywood actress that has MS, um, who started using the Olinker, and then my Instagram blew up, of course. <laughs> we became friends. And, um, and through Selma Blair, Brandon got to know the Olinker. And then he comes out of a very abusive past, let's put it that way. Um, didn't ever feel that he mattered um, and has MS and CRPS. And then by Selma, um, like I asked Selma to donate an Olinker to, um, to Brandon because he put his campaign somewhere outside the Olinker platform. And anyway, I was like, I don't know what this is, but this guy needs to break. So Selma, can you please announce that he gets an Olinker? Just as a, he, um, he called me and he, he's now employed by the Olinker on the Olinker farm. But what happened is that he had just moved from being homeless uh, with his wife and two babies in Portland to back to the garage of his mom, who drinks a lot of alcohol and has Mm. severe problems, um, into the garage floor of his mom because he couldn't be homeless in Portland anymore. And he felt he needed to go back home because whatever he tried didn't work. Lost his job, was driven into poverty and everything. And so when... Um, Brendan called me one day and he's in, in flying panic and he said, B, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to do. My grandpa is going to sell the land and um, I'm going to be homeless again because my mom's going to move and uh, all that stuff. He was in a flying panic. And somewhere in that story, he said, $15,000. And I said, excuse me? And said, back up a little bit. So your grandpa is going to sell the farm for $15,000. And that means that that would mean the difference between you and not being homeless or what. And he said, yeah. And I said, done, sold. So right on the spot there. And the next day he had the money in his account and he bought the farm from his grandpa. Um, And there's a lot more stories to that. But anyway, that was kind of what happened. And then in getting to know Brandon more, he was um, uh, close to 400 pounds. And his wife had been very heavy, more than twice the weight that she is right now. Um, And I met two people that had an awareness about food and about where they lived that was quite unprecedented for young people um, in a food desert. Like they live in Grayson, Kentucky, and it's an absolute food desert. He needs to drive 40 miles 
to get to the next supermarket that has some kind of fresh produce. Nothing is local. They were raised on deep freeze meals, which makes you at least twice as heavy as you should be um, if you want to live a bit of a healthy life. So telling people that they need to eat healthy is one thing, but do we know if people have access to healthy food and what that takes? No. So I was like, how? Oh. So mobility is one thing. Agency about your life is another thing. And then it goes into food and then access to healthy food and living in community. I was like, great, let's um, build this linker farm on your farm. So that's what we're doing. So him and his wife are employed by us, in us, for us. Mm-hmm. We incorporated on the farm, the linker family in the US. We employ linker users only. And we built a farm that is fully accessible. We'll, have, we'll create a kind of food hub where people can come um, and learn practices about how to grow food because many people have unlearned that. Um, can, grow, can learn how to prepare food because many people have unlearned what to actually do with food to keep it healthy. And, um, and then start growing in the area, converting tobacco farms into fresh produce. So ultimately, within six, seven, eight years, we will have a food hub that supplies fresh food to 27,000 people in that county. Mm. It's exciting. It's not, it's exciting. not that complicated. <laughs> it, I, lo- I love really how a design thinker, you know, it's like the convergence of a hundred different things had to come in that story, but it's not that complicated. It's not. Uh, I love how really... you see it in your mind and you make mm-hmm. it happen. Right, you make it happen. But this is, if you go at problems, yes. you constantly try to fix things. And actually, like I've been protesting to uh, against racism for decades or for women's rights, decades. It doesn't help shit because you're still talking about racism. Mm-hmm. We need to create a world that we meet in who we are, acknowledge what we represent by the color of our skin, because there's a lot of healing and acknowledging to be done before we can just be friends with each other and live in community. There's a lot of repairs and a lot of healing that needs to be done. So we need to acknowledge who we represent by the color of our skin before we can just show up in who we want to be. Mm-hmm. But just anchoring back into who do I want to be in this world, not what I want to have. And that's quite simple. It's not trying to fix the problems. It's turn around, change your perspective. Who do I want to be? And then everything falls into place and it's not that complicated. It really isn't. When you change your perspective. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if systems change, I don't believe in it. I believe in changing my perspective whereby I can show up for myself with congruent with my values and then it attracts other people that have made the same kind of awareness like oh I don't want to like privilege and and, and white supremacy you hear a lot of white people say I feel so guilty it's like if you feel guilty in white supremacy you're still writing the rights of your privilege Mm -hmm. Acknowledge who you are and use your privileges to make it right. Now right. take it, yes. Move, move it forward. And ultimately, that means why is your brother there taking the beating of the policeman and why are you not standing next to yeah. him? That's what yeah. it ultimately means. Yeah, step yeah. in. Step in. Yeah. And right. you know what? I, I want to honor you for making that statement because you're right, right? That apathy and not doing anything is more dangerous mm-hmm. than those that are against. Right. So that you're 100 percent right at that pinpoint. Right. We all have to stand and play our part. Yes. Yes. I'm part of an indigenous women's circle here in Canada. And um, uh, we talked about allyship. And one of the women said, being an ally is nice, but it's not enough. Who's going to be there when I when I torch the cars and burn the system down? And I did this. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to be just allies. We cannot just be allies. It's not, not good enough. enough. It's not we enough. We have to be there to burn the cars, to burn the system down as we chose who we want to be in this world. Yes. You know, it's funny. I said when we first met, you know, again, I'll, I'll reveal my crazy, but I had felt that I had met somebody from, you know, a past life. But after listening to you even further, and I don't mean just listening to your language, 
really listening to who you are. I feel um, that I'm in not privileged in the white privileged space, but I feel honored to have had the opportunity to speak to you because you're speaking a language that needs to be talked about a lot more than we are. And it was such humility and grace. So I want, I thank you for that. I do have one question that I know we're way over time and it's going to be so out of love. Yeah, the great thing about a podcast, we could be, we could do what we want. There's no time limit. I have had, you can cut it into words, right? <laughs> I'm like, so for our podcasters, you have a circle and a square on your glasses. Is there a significance? Because I've been trying to find out if there, but I love it. I'm like, what if, you know, there's a circle and a square. Well, that's kind of me. Like, I'm not binary. <laughs> I love it. And, and I, I always used to wear yellow glasses because I like yellow. Hence, the linkers are all yellow. Uh, people always think that there's a long story behind it. There's not. I just like yellow. I just like yellow. Okay. Best story ever. <laughs> but then, then it became a thing. People started wearing yellow glasses. Where can you get them? And I was like, oh, no, no. I'm not that kind of person. You can't just do what I... Ugh. So I was like, I need to, you know, <laughs> go away from the yellow glasses. And then a friend of mine in the Netherlands sold those. She's a jeweler and she had a box of those in her shop. And I was like, perfect. So you, I, know, I don't tell people where they can get them. They figured it out online. And the moment I see somebody online with those glasses, they're going to go. I'm, I'm yeah. not a trendsetter. I hate it. It's that that is the, yeah. the opposite of what I'd like to do. Oh my god, I love that. You sound uh, like like I wasn't a hippie. It was a trend. I wasn't a hippie. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, B, we cannot thank you enough. And uh, I I will echo what Kirsten said. Just an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Just uh, we've gone all over uh, literally around the globe and we've been all over many, many topics, but we've learned so much. And uh, I will I will add your uh, connections in the show notes so people know where to find more about the uh, Linker Bike and your organization, the Linker Linker family and the Linker family farm. So it's uh, yeah. just so many great initiatives that you're a part of. And one, once again, Kirsten, I think, uh, you know, we, we come in to think we're talking about leadership, but look at this personal responsibility, personal leadership that uh, we really start uh, unveiling. And uh, it's just so fun. So, uh, Kirsten, uh, as we look forward to other guests uh, coming down the road, this idea of IntelliKey, you know, and reaching full potential and striving for full potential. Uh, what's new in your world that's giving us more insight into that potential uh, concept? You know, um, Mark, I, we there's so much happening. And I think, you know, we touched a lot. We touched on it a lot in this podcast today. You know, I have many clients who are exploring deep within themselves about what's happening. Um, I personally just took a road trip from California to Virginia. And um, I was sharing about this last night in my Earth Keepers class. You know, I think people are so profoundly, including my clients, investigating what is this new world we want to live in right? There, there's a real bridge and we're done. Like there's a zero tolerance policy, even in my clients. So jobs that were okay before are no longer okay. Directions they were going are being tweaked. Um, and I do have several that are on this path. But, um, you know, from my own personal experience this week, going across the country, you know, I am an empath and I am a psychic and I am an intuitive and I do a lot of work outside of my executive coaching that I work on. Um, And I was having a lot of dreams, feeling the earth healing from what's happened from, um, you know, death to murders to, you know, when I was sitting in Missouri, I had dreams that night of people burning on crosses. And so I'm transmuting the energy in the land as it's happening. That I didn't want to, but I was guided. That's what's happening to me naturally. So I, you know, what's happening for my world is elevating the conversations 
So there is a deeper dialogue across as many intersections. I even think one of our guests really talked about that, that I think you and I were very Mm -hmm. moved when, you know, he mentioned we have to have dialogues even on the other side. And, you know, before I was moving, coming to Virginia for a few months, I kept saying, why am I going to a city of Confederate flags? It's not congruent with who I am. And I have to remember who I am. Right. I'm capable of handling that. I know that as long as I'm connected to source. But wrapping that back to my clients, we're all in this dialogue. You know what? And I ask all of my clients as they're moving into because, you know, your highest potential is knowing what your purpose is or purposes. Sometimes they're plural. And when you know that you find alignment and then you begin taking actions consistent with that right? You start moving along a different path. And we're all asking ourselves, what is the role I'm to play in the new world? Because there is a new world coming and it has to be different, especially, you know, we're moving into a feminine era of unity and connection and togetherness, right? It's principles, not necessarily an elimination or eradication of men, because that would be the same exact thing that we just left. But, um, these are the conversations we're having. How do, you know, I'm fortunate to be in organizations with some women, new economies with the feminine aspects. How are we going to create new businesses, which is what CEO has done, right? Just even listening to B's story and how moving it was to know she was cared for at the worst moment possible, no questions asked. No questions asked, right? That's the feminine that's coming, right? That is the design. So that's really what's happening. And my clients and our classes, they're lit up by this conversation. It's not just the women, right? Mm -hmm. The men are very excited about this as well because what gets uncovered is they were just as unhappy also, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like they were just as unhappy as we were and the pressure's off now. You know, everybody's traumatizing this system, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I yeah. loved what you were saying about kind of feeling this pulse of healing. You know, now that the the world has been traumatized as as an earth, you know, and now uh, whether it's trees, volcanoes, oceans, and full of plastics and all that, uh, so now now to feel that pulse of healing uh, would be fantastic. So mm-hmm. thanks thanks for sharing that. And I hope your classes and your coaching uh, keep keep bringing that feeling forward. Yeah. And I yeah. do want to say, Mark, because you and I have, you know, we have a lot of people in common. And I know you have a lot of clients as well who are in the healthcare profession who are up for that radical shift that we're talking about, right? It's one of them well, being... And more and more, more and more, more, yeah, <laughs> more and more people are bringing up what B says is that we have had a sick care system and they want to be, you know, flip it inside out. Don't even call everybody a patient because a patient implies they have a diagnosis, you know, and you want to put a label and a number on it so you can bill it and get reimbursed for it. So mm-hmm. instead, you know, it's people, you know, living a condition or living with or, you know, overcoming and things like that. But uh, yeah, so many entrepreneurs and and new ideas in the healthcare space, you know, whether it be digital health, telehealth, I mean, it's, it's bringing health to more people. And just yeah. like you were talking about food deserts, there's health deserts. I mean, you know, uh, here in Idaho, I went to a town where people were driving, I don't know, 60 to 100 miles, something like that, from an Indian reservation to the nearest hospital three times a week for dialysis. Makes absolutely no sense. And so, you know, this kind of design thinking was coming into that uh, to address that. It's like, well, if we can have blood mobiles, why can't we have dialysis mobiles? And sure enough, we can. Or can they do it at home and you know I'm getting very specific in that one example but bringing health to the forefront uh, has has come up a lot and uh, and this idea of dialogue uh, I was just fortunate enough during this isolation period to have a book published of some of these interviews I I was had a chance to interview about a dozen creative people literally all over the world so one it was dialogue and two it was international in scope and just what we've talked about the cultural impact of you're in Brazil you're in Paris you're in India you know you're in Australia where where are all these cultural creative minds coming together 
it's a fun book. It's a world of creativity, mm. and it's been great to bring out during this time. Maybe we have a little bit more time to read and, and learn from each other. Yeah. Well, again, I want to thank uh, B. A Link for being our guest. Thanks, Kirsten, for another great podcast. We look forward to joining you again with more leaders, more of these journeys that we're all on and we're all reaching for our full potential. So until next time, here's to your full IntelliKey in your own business and your own life. Thanks so much. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldie and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our websites, www.pureintelliKey.com and www.mark-stenson.com. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.